Welcome back, everyone, to another edition of the CSP Podcast. Today, I'm happy to welcome Martha Sherrill and Charles Linnell to talk about the shortage of PhD students in the field of communication sciences and disorders. Both Martha and Charles presented on this topic via a poster presentation at the ASHA convention, the 2018 convention in Boston. And essentially, I'm going to read a little bit from their uh, summary and background. The shortage of doctoral students and faculty within the discipline of communication sciences and disorders has been recognized and well-documented within the field for over 15 years and is only projected to increase. The shortage has been referred to as a crisis in the discipline, and CSD has long been openly discussing methods to recruit and retain qualified applicants needed to fully staff CSD departments and move forward research in the field. So in today's talk, we are going to address the biggest reasons why someone would or would not want to pursue a PhD in the field of CSD and talk about potential solutions uh, to addressing this ongoing issue. So without further ado, please welcome again Charles Linnell and Martha Shrill. The shortage of PhDs in our field is something that I've been hearing about forever. And it sounds like nothing much has changed in the last uh, number of years. Um, so I guess my first question for you guys is what got you interested in this topic? I think we became interested in the topic when we were taking a PhD seminar uh, with Martha's advisor on the topic of history within communication sciences and disorders. We realized that within our graduate curriculum, we don't learn a lot about the history of our field. And there's also a lot of the research that uh, we use to drive our questions um, within our respective fields. We have, um, we're borrowing from other disciplines. So we realized really quickly that there's a shortage of PhD students and we kind of became personally interested in what's been done because, like you said, if it's been uh, discussed for over a decade now about the shortage of PhD students within our field. And so we kind of did some of our own research, and I think that's where how we got here. Martha, if you want to add anything, I don't know. Yeah, that, that sounds good to me. The other thing, Charlie and I both came to the University of Illinois following a clinical career, but we had different clinical paths and different times that we practiced, and yet we were noticing the same barriers and the same struggles and the same things that were difficult about the program. So, you know, just cohort coming together and trying to help each other get through the program, it was surprising to us how many of the same experiences we were having and the things we were noticing despite how different our previous clinical careers had been. Yeah, you know, I remember back as a graduate student, not not being told that much. I shouldn't have told that much. I was. I remember myself. I was encouraged. My advisor at the time told me that if you had any interest in becoming a PhD, who's kind of you know encouraging me a little bit. Um, but it wasn't. It was nothing that we really ever delved into. It was something that was sort of a you know enticed. It was saying you know, hey, we can we we can really use more PhDs in this field. Um, but at the time I had no idea, of course I'm not a PhD, but I had really no idea what, 
the whole process entailed. And, you know, to be quite honest, and I know this is something you, you guys get into, I know money is definitely a barrier. And <laughs> when I was a, a grad student, I thought to myself, with all the debt that I had taken on, the last thing I wanted to do was go into even more debt. Um, and so I'm, I'm just going to, I want to just sort of jump ahead for a second. Is that the number one barrier, do you think, for prospective students going further, at least in the uh, United States? Well, I do think that, so one of the statistics that we found is that students who do enter the PhD program, uh, generally they enter immediately following a bachelor's degree, a master's degree, their clinical fellowship year, or before three years of an ex experience. And I myself entered uh, one year after completing my uh, master's degree, I returned for a PhD, knowing that if I continued to practice and earn an income <laughs> and uh, I, I would get used to a paycheck and 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 uh, it would be difficult to return to kind of a student life budget. Um, yeah. So, now, Martha, just a real quick, you, you uh, stayed out in the clinical world a bit longer, correct? Yeah. I practiced for about nine years before I came back for my PhD. And Charlie's exactly right. That You're both exactly right. That was the biggest shock to me. And I ended up going back to practice part-time halfway through my PhD wow. because it, it was just one of those choices that I had to make was, and because I think something to consider is that the financial issue isn't just a barrier to coming back for the PhD. It's a barrier to completing it. Mm, so, yeah. you know, there's, there's big numbers that start the PhD and just can't finish it. And I think that's one of the huge issues. And, and that was the choice that I had to make was if I wanted to finish the PhD program, I, I needed to supplement it somehow. And thankfully I kept my license in my C's. So, yeah. but yeah, that, that's a huge issue. And that's one of the major barriers we talk about in the poster because it just can't be underestimated, I think. Yeah. I, I'm sorry. I interrupted you before, Charlie. Was there something yeah. you wanted to finish there? No, no. I, I think just reiterating the point, I, I think Martha did a good job of that with um, discussing how, you know, this is a four to six year process. This isn't mm -hmm. a, something that you can take out a, a few extra thousand dollars worth of student loans um, to kind of supplement your uh, stipend during that time. That This is a it's a long it's a lengthy process. So um, yeah. the financial barrier is is definitely one of, if not the most, uh, the biggest uh, contributing factor to this. Yeah. Difficulty. Yeah. And and part of that financial barrier is not just the tuition you're paying, but also the conferences that you're expected to attend, uh, all the fees associated with registration, hotels, travel. Mm -hmm. And there's a number of these, you know, you, you, not just ASHA, there's a lot of societies that are all related to the fields. And uh, I believe you're both uh, working with the adult population or specializing mm -hmm. the adult population. And so, you know, again, it's not just ASHA, but I'm sure there's at least five conferences you can rattle off the top of your head that <laughs> you are expected to go to. You know, you're supporting your peers and other academics that you've, you're building relationships with. Um, can you talk a little bit about that and, and what those expectations are and how you manage those? There, There is an expectation that um, you complete 
some supervised projects. So uh, different programs will will call this project by different names, but um, an early research project, a first year project, something of that sort. Um, you are expected to complete a project usually before your dissertation, present the results. Um, so there's an expectation that you will produce some kind of result very early on in your program, present it at a national conference. And uh, sometimes there are supports in place where you can um, receive a travel grant either from your university or through the society. Um, other times you will have to um, pay for it yourself. Yeah. Yeah, these conferences aren't, they're not optional. This is not something that you can get through the program just fine if you decide you don't like conferences. <laughs> these are these yeah. are a presentation. This is where you network. This is where the first round of interviews for academic and faculty positions happen. These aren't optional. And like Charlie said, we, we want to be very clear. Both of our universities have supported us to the absolute limits of their capacity. But mm -hmm. when you're talking about four conferences a year that are $1,000 each and you yeah. look at what our stipends are, mm -hmm there's there's a disconnect there sure and i know many of the phd programs they do have stipends to offset some of the costs but of course you're expected to teach undergraduate courses mm -hmm. uh act as a teacher assistant and mentor graduate students i'm sure um uh, it's a busy lifestyle <laughs> <laughs> not speaking from uh firsthand experience but um i'd imagine you know it i'm now i'm just wondering also in, in when you're talking about the shortage are we talking about primarily in the united states or are we looking at a worldwide shortage here so well, we can only oh, go ahead charlie oh no i i was i think you were going in the same direction which is uh we can only speak to the shortage of uh, PhD students within communication sciences and disorders within the U.S. Right. Um, yes, but that being said, I mean, speech-language pathology, it was born in the Midwest. It, it's, it's, it, there are a lot of pioneers, a lot of researchers in the U.S. Um, completing these research lines, driving the field forward. And so this is a, a, a major uh, focus um, for our, for our discipline, our growing discipline. Yeah, it's a good point. You know, our profession is really not that old in the grand scheme of things. And a lot of the, um, a lot of pioneers, a lot of big names out there are probably getting ready to retire um, or will go into semi-retirement. And, you know, you mentioned the baby boomers exiting and that's not enough people uh, <laughs> coming into the field. Um, now, I, I know aside from the lack of awareness and the, and the financial commitment, is there any other major barrier that you're that you found in the course of this uh, research? Well, I'll go back to Charlie's first point of kind of how we got into this and yeah. the, the history of our profession. A lot of I, we think that a lot of even master's level students just don't know what our field is about. We don't have a good understanding of our field and like you were just saying of where the research needs are. Um, in this particular class, you know, we all kind of talked about our area of focus in Charlie's is dysphagia. And there were several people in the class that had no idea how young this area of research is in our field. Mm -hmm. So without that kind of foundational knowledge of, of where our field has come from and started, it's hard to see your place and to see where research is needed. Yeah. So I think that's a major barrier is where people feel like they can contribute. 
So what, it, would one of your recommendations be an alteration of either undergraduate and, and or graduate curriculums to include something on the order of a history of the profession and you know maybe a hybrid class on research methods and historical perspective of the field? I don't know. Yeah, the, uh, it, the introduction to communication sciences and disorders that we all take uh, as undergraduates, if we started out uh, in this uh, undergraduate um, curriculum, that would be a perfect place to set the historical perspective of each of the ASHA Big Nine. We could, we could talk about, you know, dysphagia, which is relatively new, but mm -hmm. aphasia, speech, all the way back at the beginning, speech and stuttering were involved. Um, so talk about that historical perspective uh, in those intro coursework um, to kind of uh, bring an overall awareness of our discipline. If you speak to a physical therapist or occupational therapist, a lot of them will know their history, uh, which I found really interesting. Hmm. Um, and so this, this, uh, you know, I, this related discipline that we are, uh, we seem to have a little bit less awareness than our, uh, our uh, brother therapies. Yeah. Uh, I, so I'm also curious to know if, uh, if there's been any type of trend, you know, with, with such a shortage, I'm sure some CSD programs have to start uh, looking at the related fields. So uh, psycholinguistics, you know, uh, using filling appointments through professions, not directly coming from CSD, but through, you know, schools of education and so forth. Is that something that we're seeing now? Huge. That's yeah. absolutely huge. We've yeah. both seen that in our departments. And, and one of the things that Charlie has, has talked about from the beginning of this process is we need to be worried about losing our science as a field. And, yeah. you know, I, I, all of the faculty from all of the different departments that I've worked with, I've learned from. But I, I do think there's something really powerful about being taught by someone who has clinical training and yeah. who has a background in our field. So, you know, Charlie works with dysphagia and kinesiology and so many other science fields can potentially not just contribute to dysphagia, but can take over the science. Yeah, and it's important to recognize and and have that interprofessional uh, collaboration. But I think there is something unique about having the research being driven from your own and in your own field with that unique perspective that we have. Um, yeah, it was, and it's a good point. I was, I was just thinking to myself as you were talking about this, how I, I'm like, is it just my own intuition? But I'm like, over the last few years, I seem to have seen more when I go to presentations, um, a lot more coursework and a lot more lectures being given by non-SLPs who are speaking to an SLP audience. So I guess that is uh, something that we uh, are dealing with now. Well, um, well we, we did have a, uh, a s statistic that we talked about in the poster about this, in that um, there are around 150 graduating uh, PhDs within communication sciences and disorders with in recent years, in the last six years, 260 or so faculty positions that are open, 95% mm. of them are being filled. 
but by whom? So if you look at the numbers, these, these have to be either master clinicians or PhD holders in related fields like linguistics, psychology. And so a lot of our academic positions are no longer held by PhDs within our discipline. And if so, that doesn't mean that they were a clinician. So they might not have a clinical background. Uh, background. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's one of the burdens that we, uh, uh, we, we didn't talk about yet, which is that um, our clinical work isn't valued as pre-doctoral translational research skills. So we all know how to take a baseline. We all know how to collect data Every clinician knows how to be a researcher. Now it's on a small scale, it's case-based, um, it, it's single subject design, but fostering those skills and incentivizing clinicians to come back for their PhD, that's really going to drive our field so that we, we don't lose any of that previously demarcated research territory so that we can hold the conferences and still have a voice um, and so that the clinicians are being heard and that that gap between clinician and researcher isn't widened over time, that it begins to close. We've, the, I'm sure you've heard about that as well in recent years, this, this gap yeah. in it. And just like the Ph.D. shortage, although there have been plenty of um, actions to try to address uh, the gap between clinician and researcher, uh, if it hasn't gotten worse, it, it hasn't gotten much better. And so I think a big part of that is incentivizing clinicians to come back for their PhD so that we're the ones asking the questions. Since a lot of our uh, research questions can be inspired by the clinical populations that we serve. Sure. And um, just to, you know, talking about bridging that gap between the research and, and clinical life, I know that you know, as as much as I try to, this is a bit of a tangent, but as much as I try to keep up on on research and whatnot, I, the one thing that I've been uh, hoping and waiting for, maybe foolishly, is uh, open <laughs> access to journals. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm hoping that day will come so that there is a day where we have this great thing called the internet, and I can just look up and just get the abstract and the paper. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> how wonderful would that be? Um, Anyway, so what what are some things in your poster presentation, what are some things that we can do to, to encourage new uh, clinicians going into and you know, obtaining their PhDs? Well, we touched a little bit on some of that foundation when, with regards to the history. If We do think that if some of our programs a little earlier started talking about the options and the possibilities and the needs more than just encouraging people to come back, but giving them a direction. Um, I, When I was getting my master's program, I got the exact same thing you did. I got encouragement to come back, but I didn't know what that meant, and yeah. I didn't see a path for how to do that. So I think that that history, that education part would be a really big step to maybe giving people something to look forward to and something to look at in clinical practice to find a research question that makes it worthwhile to come back for them. Yeah. And I, I think one of the things that might have incentivized me would have been just even to have, well, the program I went to didn't uh, offer uh, PhDs, but, you know, it would have been nice for someone to have 
laid out and is clear, like maybe come up with a, a fact sheet and say, here's exactly what you know, step by step. And every every aspect then would just sort of answer every question. It would almost be kind of cool maybe after your first, first year or something like that as a grad student to have like sort of a mandatory sit down and say, hey, if you're thinking about doing this, here we're just going to answer every single question you've ever wondered, you know, starting with probably number, at least number one or number two, how much debt will I go into uh, <laughs> obtaining a PhD? So I, I think that, and the, and the thing that I remember actually after, I can't remember as a graduate student or, or soon after, I remember reading an article, you know, just about another, an article about encouraging people to go into getting a, a PhD, which is that it's not going to be as expensive as you think it is. It's going to be expensive, but it's not going to be as if there's no aid out there. Um, in in fact, it's my is it is it, am I wrong to to suggest that there's actually a bit more aid for the doctoral level than there is for the master's level? Is that is there any truth to that? I mean, when when it comes to stipends for teaching and and whatnot, a absolutely, nearly mm -hmm. all programs will offer some kind of stipend package. Now, whether that's a fellowship in that this is money that is provided. Uh, regardless of if you teach a class, it depends on the university. Different universities can offer different packages. Um, but that being said, I, uh, PhD students are funded, um, so the tuition is waived and we're provided a, a stipend in most cases. There is usually a time limit on this, and so um, that can also be a challenge because we are working on multiple research projects, trying to get out our first publications, probably teaching a class or two, and so that can be challenging. Um, but there is uh, definitely more opportunity at the P at the doctoral level um, for uh, financial uh, supplements and and stipends and packages yeah. uh, financially than at the master's level. But this mm -hmm. is where we'd also like to challenge some of these organizations to help with those smaller costs that add up. Yeah. So if, if these conference presentations are mandatory, why can't the fees be waived for presenting PhD students? Mm -hmm. If we use our clinical license as part of our stipend when we're supervising in the clinic, why can't our state licensure fees be waived? You know, these little things that actually end up adding up to be thousands of dollars a year. Sure. That's where yeah. we'd love to see a little bit more attention to the financial issue be paid because we know that everyone can't be given a huge, wonderful living wage while they're doing this that mm. mimics a clinical salary. Yeah. But the small things add up like you would not believe. And that's where we'd love some some reflection um, mm -hmm. from the profession on where these, what looks like $300 here and $300 there adds up to be huge. Yeah. Now, I, I would imagine as a, um, as, as a student, you probably have access to the university's healthcare system. So you're covered insurance wise. So at least you have that going for you. Mm -hmm. um, but obviously in your, your entire or most of your time, I know Martha, you said you did, went back and did some clinical work, but mm -hmm. basically just most of your time is just based, you know, handling multiple research projects, teaching, et cetera, et cetera. It's a, it's a busy life, but I will, in one sense, I would imagine it's liberating that a lot of your time is up to you. You're on your own schedule and it's up to you to get the, uh, the work done in time and finish in what is the average five years, something like that. Four to, four to six. Yeah. Four, four to six. Four yeah. to six. Yeah. So 
Um, it would be my guess that the end would actually be harder in some sense than, be than the beginning, <laughs> uh, getting your dissertation ready to defend. Um, I don't know if you both think that's true or I mean, you're not there yet, but you're, you'll get there. <laughs> I, I deposited my dissertation last week, so oh, I couldn't right? agree with you more that the last semester was the worst by far. Yeah, yeah. Well, congratulations also for that. the best in a lot of ways. Yeah. So. But yeah, it, I mean, and we all have different stages, you know, Charlie's uh, research is very different than mine. So his project design and implementation is very different. But yet that was what, what seemed to draw us together to this topic is that we do very different research. We're in different areas of study. We had different clinical histories and yet we still saw some of these same barriers. Right. Some of the same commonalities. And you mm -hmm. both met at the University of Illinois. Yes, that's where you both began. And Charlie, you're no. Are you at U of I still, or no? No, it was uh, interesting. My ad advisor uh, was recruited by uh, New York University Medical Center, um, and so uh, this was at the end of my second year um, in the PhD program. And uh, at that time, I was given the choice uh, to. Continue studying with my advisor um, and transfer to NYU, uh, which I am there now, um, and mm -hmm. it, it's it's been a great transition and, and a wonderful learning experience. Um, or I could have stayed with the university. So a lot of universities will require that when you um, register, that although you work very closely with your mentor or advisor. Um, there is somebody that can usually um, you can transition to if uh, your faculty member uh, does transition to a new university or something like that does occur. Um, for me, it worked out because I was able to um, transition relatively seamlessly to New York University. You had, I'm sure, you had to apply and fill out a new application, or is that? Um, is that I, expedited for you somehow? It was a, it was a bit expedited, um, <laughs> but uh, that being said, I I was well on to I, at that point I had completed my first year project or whatever you would like to call that and moved right. on to uh, uh, my I was beginning my uh, uh, dissertation. Mm -hmm. um, and so I had finished coursework, so um, it, it was a matter of paperwork uh, to continue my uh, dissertation proposal and methods at New York University. Okay, so now be, being that you are no longer in Champaign-Urbana and in New York City, where the cost of living <laughs> is much greater, <laughs> I, I hope that you have received some type of stipend to offset that differential in rent costs. <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah, definitely. And New York University is a fantastic uh, research university. Uh, I was welcomed with open arms and, and uh, they do provide uh, a stipend for their PhD students for the first five years. And then you're also able to teach to supplement uh, your income. So that's mm -hmm. Uh, that was a wonderful opportunity. Um, and what was unique about the New York University is that they have this online program. So I'm able to teach online to 
number of students uh, in in classes that I have expertise in, and so now I have kind of that in person traditional teaching experience as well as the online teaching. Very nice. So, um, is there anything else you'd like to add? Either have missed anything tonight? Um, let's see. Well, I know we, we've spent a lot of time talking about the financial burdens and barriers, and I don't mm -hmm. want that to scare anybody off because both of us, I think, I'm not going to speak for Charlie, but even the the income that I lost, the the going back to work, all of that, it was monumentally worth it for me. And people need to make their their own decisions. I would just love to see the conversation about this issue be a little more concrete. Yeah. Like you were you were saying that fact sheet, it would be nice to actually see some things talked about in in real numbers and and a little bit more concrete discussion about it. But but don't let the financial issue scare you off because there are so many different ways to approach it. Yeah. Now, now would you both recommend that, again, it was recommended to me, the path that my advisor had told me if I was interested in pursuing a PhD was to go out, work for two to three years, then come back, gain some clinical experience. Is that what both of you would recommend? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think it's, it'd be kind of, it would be almost not, not be a shame, but I think it would be kind of rob you of that experience, I think, of actually seeing the the population that you're eventually going to help through your research. So I think it's, I think it's important at least, um, especially if we're talking about bridging that clinical and research divide. So, okay. Well, thank you both for being on the show tonight. Thank, thank you. you. And uh, I'll of course post a link to your poster presentation. I don't know if I have a copy of it, um, but we'll get one on the, on the show page so people can see uh, your poster. Thank you both. Thank right, you. Thanks, Jeff. All right. Okay. Thank you, Martha and Charles, for being on the show today. And good luck to both of you in your completion of both of your doctoral degrees. If you'd like to take a look at that poster presentation, you should be able to do so via a link within the show notes. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, please send them my way, jeff at conversationsinspeech.com. That's about all I have for today. Thank you again so much for listening, and I will see you next time.